All right, welcome everybody. Oh my God, it's October 17th. I haven't done this for a while. I guess this podcast will be about what did I do during my summer vacation or my, um, and plus September and plus half of October. Um, so uh, this is the podcast to hell and back and I'm back. And uh, um, the topic, there's sort of a turning point here you might say that the first, the whole first, a, a whole bunch of podcasts at the beginning of this, which actually was about two years ago right now that I started, were about the sort of principles that come from DBT and principles for, you know, dealing with hell, being in hell and uh, getting through it and uh, maybe getting out of it. And, and then after some time, I started to mix in teaching the skills from DBT and then I more formally called it a masterclass in the skills and thought it would be a good thing to have out there in the world, a, a sort of a free class for people to focus on the skills because a lot of people are in situations where they um, can't access a skills training group and they just want to hear it from somebody else. So I did that. Now after this break and some sort of naturally things change when you're on a break, I'm sort of shifting gears to a new chapter. And that chapter is gonna be now for a while, starting with today, um, focusing on the dead ends in life that people get into. And I asked myself when I thought of that, well, what's the difference of to hell and back and getting out of dead ends? You know, and there's total overlap, but, but I think there's a lot of people I know that would say, no, I'm never, I'm never really in hell. There are a lot of other people I know that know they've been in hell. And, but I think that everybody I know would say, oh yeah, I've had dead ends. There's all kinds of dead ends in life. There's dead end jobs. There's dead end relationships. There's dead end loneliness. There's dead end chronic pain. Um, there's, there's, there's dead end uh, depression and anxiety um, that you just can't get out of. There's, just, you know, or it can be briefer than that. I remember having a conversation with a man. I went to a social gathering and everybody went to a different room except him and me. And we kept talking. And then um, as we talked, he was so tedious in the way he talked. Um, so, I mean, he was very lively. He was interested in what he was talking about. There was all kinds of details. It sounded like it should be interesting and I felt like I was going under. I mean, I really felt like, not, not quite psychotic, but really felt like I am going under. I mean, I felt like I was like in a submarine looking out of a porthole, like trying to alert people, but there was no one there. And so that was a dead end. It's a temporary brief dead end. So the concept of a dead end and there's dead-end parenting. There's situations that I work with with people and that I know with people and that I've been at myself where for a while you feel you're at a complete dead-end with what's going on with your kid um, or some other relative. So, so it's a broader concept and I think it applies to more, more people. Um, and I think it's sort of a destigmatizing concept because, you know, Instead of saying, oh, this person has this psychiatric diagnosis or this disease or this, you know, everybody's had dead ends. And so if you define a lot of them as dead ends. So anyway, so I want to talk about dead ends, but I want to introduce it today. Um, and today's going to be a little bit headier 
than they've been for a while, because I usually have lots of examples and stories and stuff. There's going to be a little of that today, but more I want to get some concepts across to you that I'm, I'm then going to use. I want to get across to you a system for that I've that I have in my mind that is a compilation of previous things, including DBT, but put together in a way that I think is pretty user friendly, at least for me, um, a system, a several step system for working your way out of a dead end. And so it's going to take the whole time, I think, to talk about that and explain that. And then what I would like to do in one after another after another podcast is to um, just talk with uh, just focus on different types of dead ends. So rather than one, the, the, uh, the podcast as teaching skill this week and a skill this week and a skill this week, it'll be a problem area this week, a problem area this week, a dead end area this week and, and do it that way and bring in all the concepts, the principles and the skills around the solution of a particular dead end. You know, like maybe it'll be like a week on, a on some, somebody who has an addiction, somebody who, who, who's, you know, in the LGBTQ community and is very, uh, and it's been a dead end the way they're treated by society or by other people. Or maybe it'll be uh, depression as a dead end or it'll be parenting situation with the dead end or somebody who has a dead end job and they just can't stand it anymore. But it'll be, um, and there's a million such things, right? I wanna hear from you guys suggestions uh, so that I can tailor particular podcasts to those. And, and those who have a suggestion or who've experienced a dead end or who are in one now or who know somebody else who would be good for me to talk to, then it could also be an interview kind of podcast some of the time. We're really trying to work with somebody who's in a dead end about possibilities of getting out. But I want the scheme that I present today to sort of be a reference point, a background point. So I'm gonna go over it today and get it across to you. So please forgive me if it seems a little drier than some of the podcasts have been where I put in, uh, where I really make it humanize it with the stories from my mom, my life or other people's lives that I know. So let me get started. Why am I so interested in the dead end concept? I always have been, I realize now, I'm not sure I always realized that, but when I put it in this way as dead ends, I realize I've been this way since a child. I've been very interested. And I was remembering when I thought about this, that actually as a child, I had a repetitive dream. God knows how many times I had this dream over and over and over again as a child. Um, and, and it was this, I was in a warehouse that was really, really big and it was dark. I could barely see my way around. And I felt very alone in it, no one else is there. So I'm in this warehouse and I'm stumbling around and I'm looking for a way out and I can't find a way out. Everything's dark, everything's blocked. And so then I, um, uh, I find a staircase and it's a wooden staircase in the middle of the warehouse and I start climbing it. And it's sort of a rickety staircase with some broken areas. And I'm climbing up this staircase on these different wooden steps, some of which are sort of falling apart. And some of them, even as I step on them, they break and they fall down and I, I have to go to the next step. So it's a sort of a hazardous path to try to get out of this warehouse. And I climb and climb and climb and then I get to the very top after quite a while, it seems like much longer than it could be um, but in the dream, seems like a long time. And I get to the top and guess what? The staircase runs into the ceiling and there is no way out. 
it isn't like there's a window up there or a, way, any, a door or some sort of trap door or anything. I get to the top and then I wake up and that's the dream. Horrible. I mean, and then I'm like, oh my God. And then I have the same repetitive dream again. But each time I have the dream, I'm in the same warehouse and same kind of atmosphere, same desire to get out, same feeling of being alone. And then I, and there'd be another staircase, a different one. So that then I would feel this moment of hope in the dream. Because even within these dreams, I would remember something about the previous dreams. And then I'm thinking, oh, here's a different staircase. And I would climb it. It would be the similar kind of staircase. And I would eventually get to the top and it'd be the same outcome. And I'd have, I really, I really don't know how many, because you know, a memory distorts you. I mean, I think I had like this, probably this dream or 10 or 20 times but it's like very familiar, like it's the interior of my mind for whatever reason. I don't know what reason. I mean, even I, before I was three years old, I was in a hospital several times for things that really were life-threatening and that then not after that really. And that those first three years, I have no conscious memories of, but I am aware of what went on. So God knows whether it started there. Whatever it was, I sort of under the surface of my life and my consciousness is this sense that you can get stuck and be alone and be stranded and not have somebody there for you and want to get out and you've got a way that gives you a little hope and you're trying and end up at a dead end. So that's, that's sort of, I realized this, this goes way back. And as a child, as a older child, I was in the Boy Scouts and I would read these magazines ever, that I get every month uh, called Highlights for Boy Scouts. And it always had stories like this of rescues. I mean, where a Boy Scout of course is the hero it comes out, you know, saving the old person or saving the dog or saving the parents or, you know, and always finding a way in and helping people out. And I always found it's the first thing I would turn to when I would get my highlights, um, Boy Scout magazine. So there it was again. <laughs> so that was all um, common for me. And yeah, and you know, um, uh, you also, some, any of you who've listened to a lot of the podcasts would have heard me in one podcast tell the story of my relationship with my friend Cindy, who was a psychologist. And Cindy, uh, who from about, I'd say, like 1990 to 2003 was my best friend. And that we taught together all the time. And we taught workshops and we had a great time. And we always went to New York Knicks basketball games together. We had season tickets together. That's how I got her friend to be friends with me in the first place. And um, and we and so we were really close buddies, and we'd have dinner every Thursday night together, and we'd talk about everything together, Thanksgiving together, and all of that stuff. And so, and then she got she had breast cancer, starting on about two about 1992. She got it when she was in her late 30s, and it went on and on. And then she went into treatment and out of treatment, in treatment, out of treatment. She got better. She got worse. She had a stem cell transplant at one point that was like a devastating treatment that just about killed her. She got through it. And after that, she had five years cancer free as far as they could tell. And then she moved up near me in Massachusetts from New York, because we had moved up here. And then when she came up, we, we, our plan was to do a radio show together as well as do the teaching we did. And uh, the radio show was gonna um, be about psychology, uh, solving problems in people's lives and take people and banter and have a sense of humor about the whole thing because she couldn't not she was so funny and and then we were going to do that and then um, but then she got her cancer came back when she came up to Massachusetts so we never could do that we just did the the course of treatment she went through again and then she she died so that was truly a dead end a dead end 
Um, and, uh, and then it wasn't. And I'll tell you two reasons it wasn't. And it really is one of the things that transforms my thinking about people being in dead ends. Cindy felt she was in a dead end for many years. She felt she couldn't plan the future because God knows if she would have one. It changed everything. The second she got the diagnosis, it changed everything because she felt she couldn't count on things she had automatically counted on. And so she's going through all of that. And, um, and she feels over time, especially that last year, that life is like, like death is coming in, closing in on her, and there's not much room for her. And, and, she's, and not only is there some physical pain, there's some nausea, there's some discomfort, there's some treatment, there's some getting knocked out of things she would have liked to do. All of those things were like what, I would, what I'm going to end up in this podcast later calling the sort of primary inner core. Of, of her dead end was actually the facts of that matter was that that's what was going on. But the thing that, that really was like the noose around her neck of the dead end, when I think about it right now, was that she was what she told herself. It was the storyline of having cancer. It was the storyline of dying. It was bad enough already to be facing all of these things. But then she would routinely talk about how how the fuck did she get this and someone else didn't? I mean, that other people got away and, and she would see them having their lives, people she had known, people she had grown up with, relatives of hers, me. I mean, and, and other people are going along and don't have to cope with this. And so she was a really like, and, and you couldn't fault her for this because of course, what a t- tough situation she was in. But there was a way she talked to herself about, it was kind of like, I don't know, this may sound pejorative to some of you, especially if you've had cancer, but it's sort of like not only did she have all of the terrible things about having cancer that I'd call the sort of primary problem, but she also had a grudge about having cancer. And of course, that's natural. Most people probably would. But, but what happened right towards the end was a liberating experience for her, and it taught me a lot, which was when she started to say, you know, I'd say, well, how are you feeling about having cancer and where it's at now and what's going on? She said, well, I was thinking about it last night and I was thinking, you know, if someone in the world's going to get cancer, why not me? Like, I'm another person. I mean, nobody's immune, right? So, So I realized, you know, I guess it's me. So what am I complaining about? I mean, I had some good things and then I had cancer. And, and so it, there's something, I can't convey it to you guys as well as she conveyed it to me. She said, it was almost in one phrase, I thought, oh my God, it was a transformative moment for her to begin thinking that way about it. And then it made it possible for her, like, 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 like for many people who are approaching dying, to, to be just living in that moment and doing what she can do at that moment, sitting with me, on their back porch. It's almost like radical acceptance. Pardon? It's almost like radical acceptance. The form of radical, and I think it's what Linehan meant by radical, because she always would say she means the kind of acceptance that includes your mind, your heart, and your soul, that everything just accepts. Oh, these are the cards I've been dealt. So let me play them. Rather than these are the cards I've been dealt, how screwed up is this? 
It's like, all right, well, how screwed up is this is understandable, but it actually doesn't help you appreciate whatever you have left. And so then she would, then she and I would sit and we'd look at these neighbors' house and, they, and we would laugh at what they do because it was all these men that lived together in this house next to where she lived. And we could look down where their house was and <clears throat> it seemed like every day they bought another piece of power equipment. Like every day they'd get like another ATV or they'd get another, like they'd get a Jeep or they'd get like an, a major piece of uh, earth moving equipment. I mean, it was just like boy toys, just all these things, like major things. And we would watch this and just think, oh my God, what are they going to have next? I remember Cindy one day said, you know what they don't have yet? A Hummer. <laughs> you know? And so literally, like the next day or two days later, we're sitting there, we're looking out on their house. They've got a Hummer. It's like, it's like so we enjoyed this so much. I mean, and we laughed and we talked to, and we watched college basketball, March Madness. And we would, we would do all these things. And actually, and she had a daughter that was then very, still very young, uh, Emma. And, uh, and so she would appreciate Emma and really wanted to be there with her and with her partner, uh, Marsha. And so it really, there was a, a way, a quality of life that was suddenly a lot better. In other words, she was at a dead end in that she was going to die. But she was, she had a live end. She had a live end instead of a dead end because of her thinking about the situation she was in. So I just wanted to tell that both to say, here's another version of a dead end, but how a dead end actually isn't necessarily a dead end in all of the ways we mean it. Um, so that's always been interesting to me because I, I learned from that and you'll hear that as I go more into the system here. Um, I had a couple notes down here. I just want to make sure I say, okay. All right, so I also want to tell you that um, based on the uh, podcast today, which I would call more of a lecture than a podcast almost, um, I'm probably going to create a worksheet, the step-by-step -step way to work your way out of a dead end, and I will make that available to anybody who goes to my website. I'll put it on my website, but I'll alert people when I've done that because some people might find it useful, other people might. No, but I just want to let you know, I'm, I want to do that because also this coincides with the beginning of the writing of a book about dead ends. So there'll be some interplay between what I talk about and things I want to write about in the book. Because it really is a way of taking the whole con set of concepts in DBT, uh, including the skills in DBT, the principles in DBT that I put out in a first book that I wrote um, called DBT Principles in Action. And taking the principles and the skills, as well as other things outside of DBT, and pouring it all into a very different set of bottles, a different way of thinking about it, but the same ideas. I mean, um, because I think that there's, I'll just, I wasn't going to say this, but I'll say this. One of the big problems with DBT, for those of you who know about it, is you can look at a DBT skills book, and you can go to a DBT skills class, and you can be exposed to all the skills, but this question comes up all the time, like, but how do I know what to use when? Now, now I've learned, I've gone over a hundred skills. It's like going to a meal and mixed all together on this giant table are all of the entrees and all of the desserts and all of the appetizers and all of the other things. And they're all mixed up together. And you look and say, how am I gonna have a meal out of this? I mean, it's not organized in the usual system. Oh, here's the appetizers. 
here's the first course, here's the second course, here's the dessert, etc. So it's kind of like DBT in a way presents all this great stuff and there's no particular order that it necessarily gets presented in. It's different in different places. So um, that was always a problem and Marsha Linehan knew it was a problem and from early on when she published her first skills manual, um, she would say, she would say, okay, I think this manual is really helpful. I think there's a lot of great stuff here. It's the stuff I've used. It's the stuff I think other people can use. She said, but what I haven't written here and the what people really need is a manual to use the manual. You know, I'm, people need to know how to apply these things, what, like when and where. So I'm, I'm, in a way, this is an, an answer to that because I've always found that to be true also. So let me call this for the moment a, a sort of a DBT-based road, roadmap out of a dead end. Um, and what I'm, and just to make this uh, simplified, it isn't simplified, but a way to help you follow it. There's basically five things I'm going to tell you about because I think there's five steps in the cycle I'm talking about. But the first one isn't quite, quite well, the first one is like understanding the nature of a dead end and understanding the nature of the dead end that you're in, in a finer tuned way, in a more organized way, in a way that really lays it out, in a way that sees the truth of the dead end that you're in. So that is going to be like the first step. So let me overview the five steps and then I'll be going through them with you. So the first step is actually to understand the nature of dead ends and the nature of your particular dead end. And I'm gonna come back to that. Then, then you, once you get it and you get, oh, yeah, I'm in this dead end which has these two components to it, because all of them, as I see it, fundamentally have two parts to them. Um, then there's step one. And step one, which in the DBT world, would be uh, mainly centered in mindfulness skills. Step one is getting your mind ready to solve this problem. It's getting ready. It's a readiness step. Uh, and it's gotta be the first step because it changes subtly, but it changes the clarity of your mind. It helps you get into seeing something more like reality. It helps you uh, absorb the reality in you and around you in a way that like is really reality, it's facts. Because there's a lot of things that aren't facts that float through our minds. So it's really like uh, accessing the data of your problem, accessing the data of where you're stuck. And that you do that by things like observing and describing exactly what the data is, the sensory data, the thought data, the uh, internal experience data, uh, defining the situation around you, it's, but it's getting your mind so that you actually can do that clearly. Like, let's say you're somebody with an addiction. And not only do you, did you have a lot of social anxiety and loneliness and restlessness and some other bad things going on in your mind, and that got you addicted. And then you get found that addiction was a temporary solution to some of these things. So now you've got like a problem number two. Problem number one was just tolerating life as it was. Problem number two is now having your addiction and tolerating withdrawal and tolerating cravings and tolerating the physical discomfort, tolerating the social consequences and everything. So it's like now you've got that. And then you, on top of that, you've got the problem of justifying your addiction, lying about your addiction, being stuck with your addiction, and then trying to make it work. And all of these things, which is now 
And, and so really accessing the data is complicated. It's, there's no simple way around this, especially with something like an addiction where you've got three different layers of trouble. Um, and so when you've got an addiction, it's sort of like, how do you get into wise mind? You probably have to get into, you know, get beyond your addiction or outside of your addiction, at least for a while to access wise mind. To access wise mind, if you knew something about DBT for substance use disorders, to access wise mind, you want to get in clear mind. To get in clear mind, you actually have to like work your way step by step, even if it's temporarily out of your addiction and be in an a state of abstaining. And then you get into wise mind in the way that you, you get into wise mind in DBT. But the idea of getting into wise mind is to get where you can actually feel you can actually, and, and including painful things, and stay with it and feel discomfort and feel comfort and feel joy when it's there. And also recognize when you're judging yourself and recognize that that's a judgment and that we all have judgments. As I, I did a judgmental podcast not long ago um, that went over this in some detail, but it's kind of like, um, Getting into wise mind helps you to see your way at least clear, clearer than you were. All right. So the first step is actually to get into wise mind. And, and that doesn't mean you're always focusing entirely on your dead end. You got to find ways to get into wise mind. And I'll get back to this. So let's say you've, you're in a more wise state of mind. You're never all the way in wise mind, probably. Um, but let's say you get into more of a state of wise mind. Now you're in a better position to use all three of the other steps. And they're all, these are like giant steps. Because within each giant step, there's a lot of little steps. Just like the first giant step is, get, is move yourself towards wise mind. But you, you move yourself towards wise mind by doing several smaller steps that help you get there. A lot of the podcasts have been about those steps. So now let's say you're in wise mind. Let's say you have, let's just say you have chronic pain, which is a, which can become a dead end. Uh, it's certainly painful, whether it's a dead end or not is a different matter. But let's say now you're, you have chronic pain and you're always trying to distract from it. You're always trying to get away from it. You're trying to avoid it you're trying to medicate it. Um, you're trying to keep your mind off it and you're pissed off that you have it and you have that grudge about your chronic pain that Cindy had about her cancer. Why me? Why is this happening to me? This is really screwed up, etc. So there's this whole other layer on top of the primary problem. The primary problem being the actual raw pain that you have that you're trying to distract from or anesthetize yourself from. And, and avoid if possible. Whereas it's actually part of who you are uh, and it's not the way you want to think. So notice that the structure, I'll help organize this in your mind in just a minute because I just took a little detour. But the, the structure of a dead end is the actual primary raw facts that make you miserable how you live, where you live, with whom you spend time, what you do, where your job is if you have a job, where, where you're homeless if you're homeless, and what that's like. 
well, what, what, how people react to your gender orientation or whatever you've got. Like, so you've got all of this that I would say is the raw material. It is the primary uh, miserable core. Yeah, think of it as there's a core and then there's an outer shell. The outer shell is made up of a lot of clutter. So you've got raw misery based on real stuff and there are causes of it. And you can't figure out what to do about those causes. Next thing you know, you're accumulating clutter on the outer edge of your misery. What do I mean by clutter? A clutter is like a storyline, a judgment about yourself, a judgment about the world, a judgment about a doctor, a judgment about a friend, judgment, you know, that, that you're incompetent, a judgment about yourself as a failure, a judgment about yourself as complaining too much or being too sensitive or whatever it is. It's like those kind of judgments, which are your own narrative about yourself or about other people, become stuck to the misery. So now you've got a little piece of clutter because it isn't as real as what's causing the misery in the first place. It's now what you've added on. What else do you add on? You add on um, hopeless, the idea that you're hopeless, that there's, no, that there's no way out of the misery that you have. You add on that it's always been this way and it's always gonna be this way and nobody can make it different. You add on, um, reflexive responses to your misery that add up to one version or another of avoidance. Avoidance of your misery, which certainly doesn't go towards solving it. It's another form of anesthesia. It's another temporary drug. And yet it's natural to do. I mean, I'm certainly not talking from high and mighty because I've done all these things and still do. But it's kind of like, there are all these things we do. Comparing ourselves to other people is another big piece of clutter. You get all this clutter outside of the core misery and you actually don't necessarily see the core misery anymore. You see the clutter, you see the interpretations, you see the judgments, you see the names that you call yourself and that's your misery. You see the drugs that you use, you see the street drugs or the alcohol that you use. That's clutter actually. It's another problem now. It's another primary problem, but now it's clutter around the core problem, whatever the core problem is, which is that life is really hard to tolerate for one reason or another. All right. So now that I just took a detour to say, here's the structure of a judgment of a, of a dead end is there's actual reality misery. And then there's the add on misery. And I would contend until proven otherwise to me, that it's the add-on misery that nails it as a dead end. You can have chronic pain and not be in a dead end, but it's really bad. And that doesn't say it's not bad. You don't have to call it a dead end to make it be really bad. You can have cancer and not have it be a dead end. You could have AIDS and not have it be a dead end. You could have a terrible abusive relationship and you're stuck in it, and it feels like a dead end, but it's partly the add-ons that are in additionally creating the feeling of uh, all that clutter that adds on to the outside. I can't, I can't leave this person. There's no way I can stand it. I will not get out of this situation. This situation is going to kill me. How did I get myself in this situation in the first place? What is wrong with me? I've got to go psychoanalyze myself and figure out what is wrong with me that I allow myself to be in an abusive relationship with a partner 
who seems loving one day and then beats the shit out of me another day or treats me in a controlling way and doesn't let me do things. All of these things, there, there are, there's really the core misery of being in an abusive relationship, which is real. It's in the present moment. It's in every day. And then there are the add-ons that we tell ourselves or the add-ons that we avoid doing something about it. There's the having PTSD. Having PTSD is made up of some raw misery. And then in addition to that, it's made up of avoiding facing some of that, avoiding having certain memories, avoiding uh, facing certain situations and certain people uh, who actually in fact aren't dangerous and things like that. In other words, PTSD is an illness, so to speak, or a syndrome that comes about because of some trauma, some raw trauma, and then the add-on saying to yourself, oh, I'm incompetent. This happened to me. I can't judge where there's danger. I'm not safe anymore. The world isn't safe. The world's a dangerous place because actually this person did this thing to me. The whole world's a dangerous place or all men are this way or all women are this way or all people with uniforms on are this way or things. It starts to collect these clutter. And then PTSD is made up of the raw misery of trauma and the natural responses to trauma and then the add-ons and the avoidance that then perpetuates it. So, you know, that, that can be a dead end, but it's a dead end that includes the, that kind of uh, outer clever, clutter. So just to reorient you, I went through step one of getting out of dead ends. Step one is getting yourself into a wise frame of mind, a wise state of mind one way or another. And there are a bunch of ways to try that, to get clearer, to get more balanced, to get more solid, to get closer to your core self. Step two is acceptance. Here's the interesting thing about step two and step three. You could, you could either do step two first or step three first. Actually, the way I picture this is that it's like a baseball diamond and home plate is wise mind. First base is acceptance and third base is change. But this is a weird baseball game because you could either run to first base or you could run to third base. It's sort of a baseball game the way five-year-olds play it. You know, if you ever taught five-year-olds, you know, T-ball it's called. I used to coach T-ball. <laughs> and you know, if somebody hit the ball when they were at home plate, you don't know where they're gonna run. It's quite funny. I mean, and, then, and everybody just chases that kid. Um, so you could go to acceptance or you could go to change. And you'll go back and forth between the two, but this is, this is where you're going. So what do I mean by acceptance? Isn't wise mind already acceptance? Well, yes, wise mind is, is a lot of what it takes to be acceptance. But acceptance means that now I've got to accept that I have cancer. I've got to accept, and it's what Kathy said a few minutes ago about radical acceptance. It's like if I radically accept that I have cancer, rather than all these believing all these add-ons like this is terrible this shouldn't have happened to me this isn't fair um i can't have any good times anymore all these things that you tell yourself understandably but you know instead of that you're actually sitting and in a raw way you're accepting the raw facts of your reality you live alone you have a kid that is is acting up and you can't stop them from doing it. An adult child, a teenage child. 
and it's torturous and it's true it's really happening and it's disappointing and it's frustrating and it's worrying all these things or it's painful and sad whatever it happens to be the particular raw misery nodal point of this is that's that's going on and when you accept that that that's going on when you accept that the pain you have in a certain part of your body is there and it's part of you as long as it's there it's going to be part of you it's different than if you're hating your pain you're angry at your pain you're angry at the world for letting you have the pain so it's kind of like settling into the misery you're in a you're you know you're in a relationship let's say you're in a long-term relationship and you're really unhappy with it and it goes on a long time and a lot of people do this and you stay in a relationship and of course every relationship has its unhappiness but you're in a really unhappy relationship and you're thinking what is keeping me here why am i here for so long and you um you're and you're in a dead end partly because it is an unsatisfying relationship and that is at a, a raw reality basis that is just true it's true that you're uh, in an unhappy relationship and it's not meeting some of your needs and it's very disappointing and frustrating okay so that's like raw acceptance radical acceptance of the raw reality that makes you miserable is part of the solution is to accept it and to um, be with it in a way that you aren't usually and why is so great about that because that actually could be very painful now you're focusing on oh my god this is a miserable relationship oh my god we never talk to each other oh my god when we do talk to each other it's all small talk we haven't had a meaningful talk in seven years oh my god we never have physical contact with each other i always thought that would be part of my life oh my god in social situations i can't stand how my partner acts and i never have been able to and I just live with it. Oh my God, I'm with somebody who's very controlling or someone who's distant, someone who never meets my emotional needs. And so when you start to let yourself accept it, it can add to your pain for a while. It's like, oh, this is all real. This is not something I'm making up in my mind. This is, but because you know what we do in bad relationships? We avoid thinking about them in a deep way. We think about them every day. We're unhappy about them every day. It's like PTSD. You're always tortured by the trauma that's in your background. But it's different to actually stop and look it in the face and remember things in detail and go through it when you're ready to go through it. I mean, you. so part of getting out of a dead end is part of getting out of PTSD. It's part of getting out of being caught in a bad relationship that you actually don't focus on. You do everything but focus on it. You focus on everything else, or you become an alcoholic because of that, uh, or you become somebody who's who's always at. I actually in one I was in one long term relationship that I was pretty unhappy with, and I became a long distance runner. I didn't think at the time that that had anything to do with it, but looking back on it, I really think it had to do with it. It actually helped me stay with a relationship that wasn't working. Um, so there's that. There's that. So step. One is the getting into a wise and clear state of mind and seeing things as they are, including seeing the add-ons, the interpretations, the judgments, etc., as what they are, and seeing the misery. Step two is kind of looking at the misery in the face and being with it. 
And in the DBT world, of course, those of you who know DBT very well know that you're going to find this in part of the skills package of DBT. You're going to find it in what's called reality acceptance skills. The first one of the six of those that Linehan put out there is radical acceptance. But there are then five more. Um, and there's another, um, there's another part of that same package of skills, which is called distress tolerance, or sort of crisis survival. It's a way, if you're going to look your pain in the face and let yourself experience it so that you actually see it, you actually take it in, you actually um, experience it, which proves to yourself that you actually can survive it. Um, and, then you st and then what it does that's really good is it helps you move over to step three. Because once you actually see what you're in, you actually let yourself see the nature of your misery then you start to think, oh, what'll I, what'll I do about it? How can I deal with this? And then you start to have ideas that you might not have been thinking about because you weren't actually even looking at it. And you were just putting it off and putting it off and avoiding it and avoiding it and telling yourself bad stuff about yourself and this situation. So it's like really helps um, to move because once you are accept your, your pain, oh, well, maybe I should stop. Like in my case, I developed hip arthritis and I had severe hip pain in my, when I became 40. And I had been a runner to some degree, never a good runner, but I ran and I played basketball and played some tennis and stuff. And I loved those things and they were part of my regular life. And then I got pain in my hip and I didn't want to believe it. I told myself, it's not really there. And I'd go play basketball. And then I'd be like, practically immobilized for a couple of days. And then it'd get better and I'd say, oh, you know what they say, no pain, no gain. Run through it. Like that was a terrible idea, but I was telling myself that that was part of the clutter. I was not actually looking my pain in the face and even getting it diagnosed at that point. I just kept trying and trying this and trying that and saying, it's not that bad or, you know, I always want to play basketball so I can't, until I, went and got an MRI and saw a doctor in New York when I was 40. And he said, oh my God, you have really severe osteoarthritis of your hip. You should not be doing all these things you're doing. You shouldn't do them the rest of your life. And it was like a real blow. And I continued for about a year and a half to play basketball. And I just sort of, I, I, know, I just forgot what he would say. And, and I didn't do anything about it. I did, he said, you should see a physical therapist. I said, I hate physical therapists. They draw all these tiny little diagrams with stick figures showing you how you should move around. And I, I hate those. I'm never going to do those things. You know? And so I was like filled with like judgment and pissed off and unaccepting. But then once I just, it's sort of like I woke up one day almost. It didn't happen in one day. But if I were to put it in one day, it's a more dramatic story if I did that. But it was more like I woke up and thought, oh, I have structural damage in my hip. And, and that's for real. That's reality. It's a fact. And it causes me severe pain. And, because, and once I realized that, I thought, oh, I shouldn't be running. It's sort of like suddenly the solution's obvious. Shouldn't be running. I can't play basketball. Oh, maybe I should see a physical therapist. They're supposed to know about these things. Oh, but I hate those little things. Yeah, but what does that matter? I need them. It's sort of like the whole thing changed to where 
solutions became possible because I accepted what I had been avoiding accepting for all of that time. And I see my patients do this. I see my family members do this. I see my friends do this. You know, if you have an, somebody who has ADHD and learning disabilities and they go to school and they hate every day, well, you know what? The raw misery that they hate every day is for good reason. There's actually a lot of miserable experience when you have ADHD and learning disabilities and you're in school. It's like the wrong place to be. You wish you were born on a farm, you know, or in a hunter and gatherer society and you were out hunting every day, or you were like building stuff all the time. Because actually to sit in a desk with a group of people and write and read is like torture. And, and, and then you are stigmatized because you're not a good student and you didn't turn in your homework. And then the teacher yells at you because you didn't turn in your homework and you, didn't, and you misplaced it. And you blame and, and, and you can't tolerate the misery. So you start having storylines that add on, which are your clutter. Your storyline, the teacher didn't give me the homework. I'm afraid the teacher did give you your homework. Oh, well, she didn't explain what to do. Well, 90% of the class did it. So somehow they all got the message. It's sort of like you have all these things you tell yourself to tolerate this really painful situation. And the day you wake up to the step two, which is accepting that you have ADHD and learning disabilities, the day you wake up to that or the year you wake up to that or the five years during which you wake up to that, you start to come around and say, hey, guess what? I have ADHD. I have learning disabilities. Some people don't have these. My nervous system is different. My brain processes information a different way. My body moves differently. I'm distracted all the time. I'm always bouncing around. I, I miss a lot of what teachers say because I can't stand sitting still. It's like all of that's just natural. That's who you are. That's the raw pain. That's the raw misery. That isn't the uh, add-on. And so once you start to face that because you've gone through acceptance, step by step, and you've like, you finally took it in hook, line, and sinker that you have ADHD, and you have learning disabilities, and life is different for you. Then you start to say, oh, shit, I really do have this. This is really miserable. Then you have to go through the period of why me? And once you get past that, and then you say, you know what, just like Cindy accepted she had cancer, and it was life-threatening cancer. You know, I have it. And it does change my life. And it does narrow some possibilities in my life. So what am I going to do? And then you can move over to step three, which is what are the solutions when you have ADHD and learning disabilities and you're in society? Like you have to start to think about them, but it's the first time you're going to come up with realistic solutions. Then you're going to go to a college interview when you're a kid. And at the interview, when they say, tell us about yourself, among other things, but you're not going to have it dominate everything you say. You're going to say, oh, and by the way, I have ADHD and, 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 and receptive learning disabilities or, or expressive language difficulties. And, you know, as a result, I've had to get used to that I have that. And I've had to compensate for that. And I have to get sit close to the teacher and I have to have extra time for tests. And I actually have to kind of sometimes take less classes than other people in order to get that because I really want a college degree. I mean, the people at college in the admissions office are like knocked out because of how much acceptance you've shown that you have ADHD. You're not trying to hide it. You're not pretending. It explains a lot. And you're facing it, which they think is, is courageous and admirable. And you're going to ask for help because you need help. 
So all of these things open up the door to step three, which is going to be all these different ways of changing. Now, let me tell you about step three and then step four. So step three is now, how do you change? And so what are you changing is a, a basically the issue. You have to enter into step three by thinking, what needs to change? I've given you the ADHD learning disability example. The person with uh, addictions, if they're actually going to get rid of an addiction, they're also going to have to face the raw misery of social situations or the raw misery of their negative emotions without substances. And that's going to require staring down who they really are and experiencing that, et cetera, and going through that. So different people to get out of dead ends have to change different things. So it really depends on what you've got. So I sort of categorize them as following. Some people are really in misery because of circumstances. Their job's terrible. They need their job. If they transfer jobs, they're going to get a big drop in salary and they don't see the way out. So they feel stuck with their job and they still have to do it another 20 years to get retirement. So or something like that. You know, there's all kinds of job misery. There's all kinds of misery, just circumstances of where you live, you know, somebody who has really high sensitivities to things in the environment like mold or allergies, allergens, um, chemical sensitivities uh, to things that are everywhere. Um, the situation can be terrible um, and a person is trying to struggle through life, right? And so they need to solve that problem. Uh, and if they try to solve it without looking it in the eye and facing what actually is the nature of the problem, which might require more assessment and, and, uh, and careful looking, you know, they're just not going to be able to solve it. it. These things usually, unless you just have a co complete lucky break, which sometimes people do, um, you know, mostly these things come about because you actually stare them in the eye and you say, I need to solve this circumstance of homelessness. I need to solve this circumstance of, of sensitivity to certain chemicals and things in the environment. I need to solve this problem of addiction. I need to solve this problem of my job. And once you look at square in the face, okay, that's that. What's another category? Relationships. Solving things in relationships because you're very unhappy with your relationships. You're in a relationship and you're afraid and you're very unhappy with it, but you also have told yourself that if you get out of this relationship, you're going to be alone and you're going to be alone forever and you'll never find another person. So at least this is a person you can put up with and put up with you. And so you should just stay in this. And you've already tried to change it, you think, and you can't change it. Well, so there's a second set of a second set of solutions which has to do with the dead ends of relationships. Now there's, there's the next dead ends are living with your own emotions because people have different emotional makeups. And so some people have more negative emotions. Sorry, my dogs are barking. Somebody must've just got, gotten, gotten home. Let me close the door. Just a second. Sorry about that. I'm not really sorry about that. That was a, that was a fake, I'm sorry. I love these dogs. Um, so there's relationship problem. So the way I think of it is you've got external things, external to yourself that cause you misery that end up in a dead end. And there's things internal to yourself that cause you misery and end up in a dead end. 
you have major depressions, you have anxiety disorder, you have um, a lot of anger, you didn't ask for any of these things, you have a lot of shame, you didn't ask for any of these things, right? But there you have it, it's part of reality. It, this isn't a made up thing, this isn't a clutter, this isn't an add-on, this is core misery that you have. You do other things to get away from these things. You do other things to cover yourself up. You do other things to judge them and to have interpretations about them and rationalizations about them. You do things to avoid things. But, but these things are very real. You have certain types of emotions. You have certain types of thoughts. Ask somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder. Did they ask for the thoughts that they can't get rid of? And all of us have some versions of those. But if you have OCD, you have really like intrusive non-stop thoughts about things that just torture you you didn't ask for those so you so you need solutions to internal things like emotions thoughts images images i mean sensitive sensitivities sensations perceptions so you need solutions for these things i just want to say that now and then say that within the world of dbt there's two modules of skills that i'm talking about where you draw from in terms of both the principles and the skills. And these are what we'll go over when we, in future podcasts, when we look at particular problem areas. Um, one is emotion regulation skills, which has a whole collection of skills to try to tolerate and then modulate and then transform your emotional experiences. It's really to change your emotions rather than just have to accept them and live with them. But you get there by first accepting that they are real and they are part of you. And then you address them with different ways with the uh, skills in emotion regulation. And then there's a set of skills, interpersonal effectiveness, which are these ways of changing relationships or changing how you interact in a relationship. So you're more likely to get what you want and you're more likely to get the other person to change or you're more likely to keep a good relationship rather than ruin a relationship, or you're more likely to keep your self-respect. So, and then there's more things than that. All right, so there's change, there's, there's moving to change. And finally, sometimes you, you try to accept your core misery and the causes of it. You try to change those things. You go back and forth and you find you aren't succeeding and you're stuck. And you're stuck with some situation where why can't you change this with deep acceptance and then with change and then, but then you can't accept it very long and you can't change it very much and it snaps back into place. In many of those situations, you're in a, you're in a, you're in a, you're in that because there are some forces bigger than you at work that are opposing each other and creating a stuckness that you are only one piece of and one part of, that really there are, there are some colliding antagonistic forces. One position is opposing another position and you're trying to make changes, but actually you're not changing the fundamental fact. You know, it's like you're moving around chairs on the deck of the Titanic and the problem was the iceberg. And you think you're solving it by where you're sitting. Well, it gets like that. So there's sometimes there's a deep collision that has happened, sort of the way the, the earth along certain fault lines develops pressure, higher and higher pressure till there's a slippage of that and an earthquake. And then everything's different. So 
I know that I'm not going to explain this well enough in a matter of two more minutes, but there is a lot that one can do, and quickly the steps of that are going to be to step outside yourself and identify the positions that are in opposition with each other. It might be that you're in opposition with a family member. And it's just not getting resolved no matter how you do it. You're in a, and there, or there's an opposition within you between two different values you have that are in collision with each other. And if you do this, you're violating one value. And if you do that, you're violating another value. Or you're in a family where actually the problem is bigger than you. You don't quite realize the degree to which you are stuck as a representative of one dynamic in a family that's fighting against another dynamic in a family. And it started before you even existed. And now you're part of it and it's bigger than you. And you're trying to make changes with accepting your misery, accepting what's real, accepting what's causing your problems or changing those things. But actually it's kind of like when you try, I'll just say this at the end, because just one mini example, it's when people try to change things in individual therapy and they work really hard and they try to accept the situation they're in with their family. And then they try to change the situation they're in with their family. And then they try to accept it again and they try to change it again, but actually it doesn't move very much. But, and then something happens with one of the members of the family that changes everything. Like maybe there's a family therapy or maybe there's just someone who changes how they think about things and it reframes everything. So there is this thing and in the world of DBT, it's called focusing on dialectics and trying to find the middle path between two colliding opposing forces. And uh, this is not doing justice to it, but I want you to know that's the next step because if you can then, and there are a bunch of things you can do to shift things and we'll be going over those in different situations in different weeks. And, um, but when you can shift things, then you might be able to now go back and start over with changing something because everything's different. The relationships in a family are different. The relationship between you at your job is different. Okay. So it's exactly been an hour. And I, I hope this was a good lead in to the rest of the podcast. And I hope this one in itself was in some way helpful to somebody. Um, it's sort of like, I just sort of felt like I had to step out of just doing all the detailed skill thing and step back from the mountaintop and look at the whole picture from a certain angle. And I'm hoping it's going to be useful to you. I'm always interested in feedback, as many of you know, because many of you have given me feedback through emails, etc. Uh, on my website or through my email address more directly, if you want, which is c.robert.swenson at gmail.com. So I hope this is useful and I'm open, very open to suggestions about different types of um, dead ends. There's one person I've already decided to talk to and he's agreed to talk about what it's like to get really old and to be coping with what has happened, including adjusting to assisted living facilities, which is something he could never have imagined in a thousand years and things like that. And just the indignities of being old. It's like, I'll try to warn you in advance when he's going to come on because some of you might not want to listen to that. <laughs> You're not ready to face that. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready to face some of that, but he's, he's leading the way. Um, okay. All right, everybody.
Uh, I'd like to say it's been good to see you, but I've only seen one of you because only one of you is on live, and that's Kathy. So, Kathy, nice to see you. And uh, everybody else, uh, take care. The next one of these is not next week because I'm teaching a workshop next week. It's week after next. And I'll be putting that out at the places where I announce this and putting it on my website. Okay. Adios, amigos.